Unto us a son is born. Unto us a son is given. Now what? What is next for our Savior? As we journey through the next seven chapters in Luke, we will witness the unfolding of a divine story. A story not just of a baby born in Bethlehem, but the Savior stepping into humanity, immersing himself in the struggles and joys of life. Just as we marveled at the miraculous birth, get ready to witness the miraculous ministry. It's not just about the child anymore. It's about a king who walks among us, healing the broken, casting out demons, and calming the storms of the Sea of Galilee and within our souls. Here we will find Jesus not just performing miracles, but being a beacon of hope in the midst of our storms. What if you could witness firsthand Jesus calling his disciples, inviting them to join him in changing the world? How would it feel to stand in awe as he demonstrates the boundless love of God, breaking down barriers that society had erected? What would it be like to watch Jesus be baptized and raise children from the dead? From the announcement of a birth to the revelation of a Savior's mission, from the manger to the ministry, this is the story of Jesus, the Son of God, continuing his mission to seek and to save the lost. So let's embark on this transformative journey through the Gospel of Luke together and meet our Savior. Mark your calendar. That starts at 6 p.m., by the way, on a Sunday evening. A little unusual for our underground sessions, but we hope to see you there. It's going to be a great night. It happens to be Palm Sunday, so come on out that evening, and uh, we will have a wonderful time together. Please turn with me in your Bible to Luke, and we will be in Luke chapter 8 today. And as you do that, I want to start with a question. Have you ever felt really desperate. Have you ever been in an emergency situation where you were feeling desperate? I looked up the word desperate in the dictionary, and here's uh, some of that definition. It says it's uh, an experience of suffering from extreme need or anxiety, having lost all hope, moved to despair, involving or employing extreme measures in an attempt to escape defeat. Have you ever felt desperate? Have you ever felt suddenly out of nowhere uh, foisted into some sort of crisis situation. Uh, maybe you or your loved one suddenly ends up in the emergency room. Or maybe you have an appointment about a biopsy and you hear the doctor use the word cancer and you stop listening to everything the doctor said after you heard that word. Or maybe your spouse leaves you and you get the divorce papers and this time you know there's no more second chances. Or maybe you're a teenager and suddenly you realize that someone at school has shared an embarrassing text message about you that you didn't intend to be shared with others and you're humiliated and you're feeling desperate. Or maybe on a more serious note, you're middle-aged and you get out of a meeting with your boss about budget cutbacks and suddenly you find yourself unemployed and you don't know what in the world you're going to be doing. Big or small, issues can arise in our lives that leave us feeling desperate. I want to begin today by sharing with you this true story from March 2018, six years ago, about a little girl named Leah. Leah was completely healthy. She was very involved in athletics. She was totally fine until suddenly she became paralyzed from the neck down. This past week, we sat down with Leah and her grandfather, who told us that tragic story. Take a look. 
Six years ago, I was in Florida. My wife called while I was eating dinner and said that Leah is sick. I remember I wasn't feeling too great in the morning, but I went to school anyway, and then I was actually feeling a little bit better. And then I was just playing in my basement with my sister, and I was doing cartwheels, like we have a gymnastics bar, I was swinging around on that, and my back just kind of started hurting. And Leah calls up to me and says, Mom, I hurt my back. And then she picked up her hand, and she said, I can't move my fingers. I said, okay, um, I think they're asleep. You know, let's... You know, we're just gonna hope that they get better. And they didn't. I mean, she said, I can't lift my arms. And I was scared, but I wasn't, you know, I just kind of thought this is really, really strange. And she got up off the couch and she collapsed on the floor. Um, and she said, I can't walk. I just immediately got on I-95 and drove home. And within the first 48 hours was described as being profoundly quadriplegic. So we went from completely fine and normal to within 12 hours being very close to death. It was very hard to watch your child lay there and with a breathing tube in her mouth, mouth the words, am I going to die? That, that first morning in the ER, she couldn't breathe. They kind of heroically got her breathing again. And uh, it was just a wide range of emotions. Life was so good, this shouldn't happen, and it happened. Life was so good, this shouldn't happen, and then it happened. A few months ago, the author of this book, Little Girl Get Up, uh, sent me a copy just to see if this could be of use in uh, any ministry setting. And as I began to open the book and read the book, it struck me as an extremely compelling story. I started to read it with tears streaming down my face at what God did in the midst of this unspeakable tragedy. And then we, uh, we got an idea to maybe use this book as a fundraiser for our upcoming teen missions trip in the Dominican Republic, and the author would come and, and sign copies of the book for us. And we said, that's great, we'll stick you in one of these dates. And we're looking at the calendar, we're like, okay, this, how about this date? He worked for him, worked for his granddaughter. And, and then after we got the schedule all settled, and after all that, I go looking at the Luke Scripture calendar, and I realized the title of the book, Little Girl Get Up, comes from the exact passage that was assigned for this morning. You're going to think we planned this, and you probably won't believe us that we didn't. I feel kind of stupid that we didn't think of that. Like, <laughs> hello, why don't you coordinate it? We didn't coordinate it. It just so happened to be that way. We'll finish that story later on, but let me just go back to that question. Have you ever felt yourself in a desperate situation? How do you respond when crisis like that hits you? And how does God want you to respond? How can we find peace in the midst of that kind of trial? And for some of you this morning, life is good, and, and we rejoice with you. But just listen to this message, because you might need it tomorrow. Uh, for some of you today, life is okay, it's hard but manageable. Please listen to this message today because tomorrow your life might become unmanageable. And then thirdly, there's probably others of you who right now today, you're feeling desperate. You're feeling afraid. You're feeling alone. And you're starting to think you're losing control. And if that's you in this situation, you came to the right place this morning because this passage is for you. 
So turn with me to Luke chapter 8, and we'll be looking at the tail end of the chapter, verses 40 to 56. I simply entitled the message, Where Do You Turn When You're Feeling Desperate? And you'll see three different parts to the story today. Part one, we're going to see the situation. Part two, we're going to see the interruption. And then part three, we're going to see the resurrection. And here in our passage, we will see not just one, but actually two stories of desperation in sandwich form. The Gospels often have these sandwich stories. It's a literary technique where the writer starts one story, cuts it off in midstream, turns his attention to another story, and then comes back and finishes the first story at the end. And so here we have two amazing stories intentionally woven together, and they are a roller coaster ride from desperation to joy. And there's some really important lessons for us along the way. So that's where we're going to be in our text for today. And let's say a word of prayer to ask for the Lord to help us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Son, who is made glorious in this word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit for not only inspiring this text, but preserving it for us today that we might learn from you. And so, God, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we ask this for Christ's sake and his reputation. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Just a little context. We left off with Luke chapter 7 last week. There was a sinful woman who was weeping at Jesus' feet. And today we enter into Luke chapter 8. I don't have time to preach the whole chapter 8, uh, but chapter 8 begins by telling us about some amazing women who were financial supporters of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, look at chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Soon afterward, he, meaning Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women, circle the word women, who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom even seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, I mention that to you today because women play a prominent role in the Gospel of Luke and in the ministry of our Lord Jesus as a whole. I'll come back to that theme later. From there, you can look at this outline and you'll see the context of Luke chapter 8 kind of divides nicely between two different sections. You'll see a macro level outline on the screen and how our passage fits together. In the first part of the outline, the chapter begins with Jesus' words, and the second part of the chapter is Jesus' works. Jesus' words refer to that famous parable he tells, the parable of the soils. It's a parable about the importance of the word of Jesus. And the question we should ask ourselves in hearing that parable is, how am I doing with regards to listening to the words of Jesus? Because it has eternal consequence. After this, Luke transitions from listening to Jesus' teachings to focusing on Jesus' actions. And there are four miracle stories told in a row. The first miracle story is the miraculous stilling of the storm story, where we see that Jesus' word has incredible power even over nature. In the second story, we see that there is a casting out of demons from a man who lives among the tombs, and once again we see the power of Jesus' word even over the realm of evil. And then in the third section, here in our text today, we have these two miracle stories that are interwoven together. 
So that's kind of the macro level context. Now let's look at the micro uh, section of our passage today, and we'll look at the details starting in verse 40. If you're ready, say amen. amen. All right. It says, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus. Everybody say Jairus. Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Pause. Here we meet our first character in our story today. His name is Jairus. He's a prominent leader. He has a very formal position in the life of the synagogue. He lives in the upper class part of Warren Township, if you will. His kids go to the best private schools. He's got everything under control until now when his daughter, who's 12, who goes to Pingree, by the way, is now sick and dying. 12 years old was the age back then where a young Jewish girl would come of age and be considered an adult. As she had her bat mitzvah, she would now be eligible to become married and have children. That might not happen for her, and her dad is now in a spirit of desperation going to find this rabbi Jesus, the healer, and notice he is falling down at Jesus' feet. Once again, ever been desperate? Normally, I like to have life under control. I'm really good at planning what tomorrow is supposed to look like. I have all kinds of expectations about how the future is supposed to pan out. All of us live with these assumptions, some of them very explicit, some of them more unconscious, but about things are, how things are supposed to go. Then we suffer, and all of a sudden the tomorrow I was planning on isn't there anymore. All of a sudden in those moments, I've got a very sick family member. Or now there's been an accident, and the officer calls and says, I'm with your daughter. She's been in a car crash. Can you come to the scene? Or the doctor calls you and says, I got your results. I'd rather tell you in person. Need to see you as soon as possible. And then all of a sudden, the tomorrow we were expecting is gone. And then all of a sudden, in those moments, we feel very, very helpless. And we realize, despite our desire to keep things under our control, we realize in those moments we actually are not in control, and we never were. And in those moments, sometimes we go looking for the one who is in control. That's Jairus. Jairus goes looking for Jesus Christ. How about you? When you're in your time of desperation, where do you go? Now, if you're like me, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, Sometimes in a desperate situation, you can forget to pray. I'm like making phone calls. I'm doing some research. I'm like into this situation. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a pastor. I haven't even stopped to pray. Julie, we should pray. Ever been there? We got to remember in that time of desperation where we turn. This man, Jairus, turns to Jesus. Jairus is desperate. He turns to Jesus. When we're desperate, we need to turn to Jesus. And just as we're beginning to think about those kinds of things, Luke, the gospel writer, goes, cut! And he turns his camera angle elsewhere. This leads us to movement two, the interruption. As in verse 42, we're going to be switching scenes and we're going to all of a sudden be introduced to another character. Pick it up with me with 42. It says, as Jesus went... The people pressed around him, 
Imagine this huge crowd. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for how many years? 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So now we meet our second character in the story today, a woman without a name, but a woman who had been in pain for a very long time. She had suffered much under many physicians. It says here that she had spent all her living, all her finances on fixing this medical problem, but her problem actually got worse. She was subject to bleeding, some kind of gynecological malady that no one could successfully treat and heal. As we study through the Gospel of Luke, you may recall the book of Colossians tells us that Luke was a medical doctor, and he will often use technical medical terminology in his Gospel. Here's an example. You'll see a lot of examples of that. So this woman is suffering some kind of issue, and I just want you just for a second to put yourself in her shoes. She has a relentlessly hopeless situation which wasn't getting better. Now think about what that would mean for her. First of all, she would be unable to become a mother. Secondly, she would also be outcast, rejected, and she would be ritually unclean, according to Leviticus chapter 15. And lastly, notice how long has this been going on? This has been going on for how long? 12 years. That's a long time. In other words, this woman first began to suffer with her bleeding issue on the same exact year that the other little girl was born. 12 years ago. Now, both of them because of their physical sicknesses, might be prevented from motherhood or having children. One, because of her internal bleeding. The other, because she would tragically pass away right before she was eligible to become married. Now, in those days, not unlike today, for a woman not to be able to become a mother and have children was devastating. It was a severe identity crisis for them. And so for both of these females, connected together by this 12-year gap, this is a very difficult and heartbreaking scenario for them on so many different levels. So back to the second woman. The text goes on to say this in verse 44. It says, she, the woman with the issue of blood, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. The word touch in Luke's gospel is significant. You might recall in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is touched by the sinful woman. Here, this woman reaches out to touch Jesus' garment. And you might say, well, why would she do that? And for this, I want to give you a little bit of cultural background. In that culture, according to Numbers chapter 15, God had told the Jewish leaders to wear something that they called a, a prayer shawl. And it would look something like this. It really hasn't changed over the years. And so a prayer shawl was a garment that Jewish leaders, Jewish rabbis like Jesus, would oftentimes wear. Um, and so this was a garment that was, was very specific. God said, I want you to construct this garment with four different corners, and on the four corners, uh, I want you to, to sew tassels on each of the corners, and so you'll notice the garment kind of drapes over you like this, or oftentimes you'll see people wearing over their head, and they still do this today, and the tassels coming off the garment always have five knots to, rem to remind them of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the five books of Moses, because these tassels were supposed to remind them of God's law and how important it was to keep God's law in their lives. And so what they would call these uh, corners, these tassels, uh, coming off the garment, uh, they were called tzitzit in, in the Hebrew, but really what the, they would refer to them as the wings, the wings of the garment. 
And so like if, if a rabbi was walking around, you can kind of see where they got the idea that they would refer to this thing as wings. You see, am, I, am I flying yet? Are you guys understanding what I'm talking about here? So they would call the tassels the wings. And so Jesus would wear probably something like this as a rabbi. And this woman notices Jesus and she comes up behind him and she's got some idea of who this might be because the prophet Malachi had a very, very obscure uh, prediction in chapter 4 where it said that when the Messiah would come, he would come with healing in his wings. And so who does she think that this man is? And what exactly does she believe about this rabbi Jesus as she reaches out, elbows her way through the crowd, and stretches out her hand to be touched by the Lord Jesus Christ? She's starting to believe uh, that he really is who he says he is, the one that was prophesied, the one that is coming, the great son of David, the one that would come one day with healing in his wings. And so in her suffering, in his, her physical uh, malediction, she comes and she, in faith, stretches out her hand. And when she does so, believing in Christ, believing the word of God, which told us what would happen, the text goes on to tell us that immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Let me put that verse on the screen for you. Immediately, it says, her discharge of blood ceased. It's incredible. In a moment, 12 years of frustration and futility are reversed by one touch of the master. One commentator said it this way, quote, blood flows from this woman, but healing power flows from Jesus Christ. Now, the other thing culturally you should know is that touching a hemorrhaging woman would make you ritually unclean. But with Jesus, it's always the other way around. In the Old Testament, the unclean would make the clean unclean. But when Jesus comes on the scene, the clean makes the unclean clean. And so Christ, with just a touch, has healed this woman of 12 years of suffering and misery. One more careful observation. As I said earlier, the Gospel of Luke loves to lift up women as role models for us. We saw that last week. Pastor Bob made it very clear that the sinful woman was the model that he used to rebuke Simon the Pharisee. You remember that? Say amen. We saw earlier in Luke chapter 8 verse 1 that it is women who are financially providing for Christ and his disciples in their ministry. And right here, I want you to notice one word in the text that perhaps you don't really think much of. It's the word in verse 44. It's that word behind. Circle that word in your Bible. That's not just about how she snuck up on Jesus covertly. Always in Luke's gospel, the word behind is used to denote the position of a disciple. In other words, in Luke chapter 5, verse 11, when it says the first disciples followed him, the word there literally means they came behind him. Again, we'll see next week in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. The word follow there literally means come behind me. In other words, this woman is doing what disciples are supposed to do, to line up behind Jesus and follow him. She is our model. We are to follow him as she is following him. I mention this today because sometimes you hear that Christianity is very culturally oppressive to women. But what I want you to see here in our text is that in Luke's gospel and in Jesus' ministry as a whole, 
He elevated women to a place of honor and a place of status and a place of dignity that was unheard of. And if you look around the world even today, you will see everywhere that Christianity has spread has always been good for women in that culture. Because according to Jesus, women are worthy of honor. According to Jesus, women are worthy of dignity. According to Jesus, women are absolutely indispensable to his kingdom. So back to our story. The woman reaches out and she is healed. And then the text says this in verse 45. It says, and Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Again, no, notice the comic relief, if you will, I think, in this passage. It's okay to laugh a little bit. Jesus is like, who touched me? Peter's looking around like, what are you, what are you talking about? Who touched you? Like, dude, we're surrounded by this whole big crowd. Everybody's touching you. How are we supposed to know who touched you? Who touched you? Every, literally, everybody in this place is touching you. Who's touching you? Jesus knew someone had touched him, and the woman knew she touched him, and we, the readers, know someone touched him. And Jesus is about to call her out of the crowd. Look at verse 47. It says, And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, everybody say daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Notice this woman trembles in Jesus' presence. It's a word that speaks of great fear and awe that often follows a miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. It's used elsewhere, such as when he stilled the storm. And it's a, it's a word that describes being in awe of someone with that kind of healing power. Notice, this is the second person in our text today who has fallen down at Jesus' feet. Did you notice that as well? First there was Jairus, and now there is this woman. Third, I want you to notice the word that he uses to address her. He uses the word daughter. Did you see that? Circle that. There are other people in the Gospel of Luke that are called children. She is the only one that gets called daughter. And she gets called daughter by Jesus himself. So now we have two daughters in our story today. One daughter has a powerful father, Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. He gets what he wants. He gets whatever he asks for. But we have another woman here who's poor and who's outcast. And no one's there to speak up for her. And she's got to elbow through the crowd herself. And she's got to muscle her way in. She's the lowest of the low. And to her, to her, Jesus bestows on her that term of endearment, daughter. Jesus becomes her champion. This is who Christ is for all of those who are desperate. Jesus cares enough to see her. He cares enough to call her daughter. He cares enough to heal her. And friends, if Jesus cares about her, that means he cares about you in your desperate situation. Is there something in your life right now that you're facing that is a desperate situation, my encouragement 
is to push and elbow and claw your way to the presence of Jesus Christ. So just as we're about to rejoice with this woman, Luke, the director, turns his camera angle back to that original story. Remember Jairus? We go back to verse 49, and we're all of a sudden shifting scenes again. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. There's been a delay. It's too late. Don't trouble Jesus anymore. Side point, by the way, our God is never troubled when we come to him. Okay, that's not the right perspective. What they mean is it's too late now, she's gone. Not even Jesus, the great healer, can raise the dead. Or can he? That's kind of crazy. No way. So hold that thought and just put yourself in this scene as someone comes to bring Jairus the news and you're Jairus. And someone comes to tell you, it happened, your daughter Your child has died. He went to Jesus, and it didn't work out. And as baffling as that is, I think that's a story a lot of you can relate to. Ever feel like things just don't work out? Ever feel like Jesus takes a really long time? Have you ever been confused by God's actions or confused by God's inactions in your prayer life? Anyone? You're leaving me hanging up here? I'm the only honest person with my hand up here. Thank you. Thank you. Ever be confused by this word right here? Delay? Like you're just waiting and waiting and waiting for God to answer. And I'm like, dear God, it's Dave. Like I have total faith in you that you could do this thing. Like I believe And I just need you to, like, take care of it, right? Oh, God, would you please show up? And then it's like he doesn't. And it's like you're waiting. And it's like this is this huge delay. God seems so absent. And I'm like, where are you, Lord? You ever feel that way? I bet you have. And in this story, Jesus delays so long that Jairus' daughter actually dies. Now, don't do the thing where you're like, hey, I've read the Gospel of Luke before. I know what happens. Jesus is going to raise her from the dead. Everything's going to work out just fine, okay? If you're doing that, I just want you to realize that she didn't know that, and her dad didn't know that, and from their perspective, she really died. And death is never a good thing. Death is always sorrowful and terrible and tragic, so please don't minimize that. As far as the father knew, Jesus didn't come on time. And as far as she knew, he didn't come on time. But, however, the Lord Jesus has a very special miracle in store for this dear family. But first, he's going to call them to another level of faith. Take a look at verse 50. It says, but Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Do not fear, only believe. You can almost feel the earth tremble with those words. Where do we go in times of desperation? We go to Jesus. And what do we do? The answer is right here. Friends, we remember these words from Jesus. Do not fear, only believe. That's not easy for them. That's not easy for us. That wasn't easy for him. Jairus has a decision to make right here. He could be like, hey, man. Let's pack it in. You know, she passed away. Let me get on with my grief. 
our family's going through something. We don't really need you visiting anymore. I'm kind of disappointed in you, Jesus, actually. But even when all seems lost, Jairus does not give up. And that leads us to the third movement of our passage for today. We have seen the situation. We've seen the interruption. And now we're about to see the resurrection. Now, reducing a high fever is one thing. Okay? Dealing with an issue of blood, that's amazing. This is a whole nother level. This is the HNL, the whole nother level. Does Jesus' word actually have the power to bring life from the dead? We're about to find out. The text continues, verse 51. It says, And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James, the inner three, and the father and mother of the child. So there they are. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. Now, at this point, culturally speaking, uh, you may not know this, but they had these professional mourners that would come when there was a death in the family, and they would come and weep and wail around your house in order to assist the family with getting in touch with the real gravity of grief that was happening. And so they probably came, and they were surrounding the house and weeping and wailing. The Gospel of Mark says they were wailing, and Jesus commands all of the mourners to stop it and says, do not weep. And what was their response to the Lord Jesus? Well, Verse 53, very respectfully, it says, and they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. So friends, can I just say something real quick here? When you step out in faith, not everyone will understand. When you step out in faith, they may laugh at you. They may think you're crazy. They may think you're delusional. They will hang up the phone with you and they will roll their eyes with whoever else is in that room with them. They will think that you are an absolute basket case, maybe needing to be committed somewhere. And when they laugh, I just want you to know you're in pretty good company because they were laughing at Jesus too. This is their response in the natural. The text continues. Jesus says this, verse 54, but taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. Child, arise. Arise. Now, the technical term for child here is a very gentle term. The Gospel of Mark actually tells us that Jesus was speaking in Aramaic, and it records for us the Aramaic words that he used in that setting, talitha kum, talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. Little girl, get up. And that phrase became the origin of the title of this book that I was mentioning earlier. As the family had their tragedy and their time of desperation, they remembered this story from the gospel of Jesus Christ and that phrase, little girl, get up, Talitha kum, and that became like a rallying cry for mom and for dad and for grandpa and for grandma, Talitha kum, Talitha kum, Talitha kum. And they had this rule as Leah was in the hospital, they had this rule as, as she was in the hospital, they called her hospital room the no-cry zone. Now, I know there's a time for tears, but what they felt the Lord was pressing on them was they needed to believe that God was going to be at work in their little girl, Leah, in a very healing and miraculous and powerful way. So they said, you can come to the hospital. It's very hard to see an eight-year-old girl hooked up to a ventilator, a feeding machine, and not start crying. So people would come, and they'd be overcome with emotions, and mom and dad would be like, that's okay, you can cry. Just stay in the hallway. Let us know when you're done. Then you can come visit. And so this was their, their, their rule. 
as I was reading the book and just reading how, how much faith they had, it, it mentioned that one of the visitors in the hospital was Amy Huber. And what a blessing it was to have Amy come and visit them and support them and strengthen them during this time. And they kept everybody from crying inside of that hospital room. This is what they believed. They believed that this little girl would, would get up. And this was what they were trusting God for. So going back to that biblical story, just put yourself in this room with Jesus. There you are, Jairus, his wife, the three inner circle disciples. Jesus is there, and then there's this little girl laying down. Jesus says these words, child, arise. And then here's what happens. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Can you even imagine this? This is one of those Bible stories I really, really wish I could have been there. I really wish I could be a fly on the wall and watch this thing. I would have loved to see this little girl start moving. I would have loved to see the look on the parents' faces. I would have loved to see the look on the disciples' faces. I mean, I, whoa, it says her spirit returned. That's because the Bible teaches that death, the spirit separates from the body. That's what death is. It's separation. But Christ, who's Lord over even the realm of the dead, calls to her spirit and says, get back here, child, arise. It's amazing. Jesus made a way where there seemed to be no way. Her situation was impossible. But remember what Luke chapter 1 taught us? Nothing is impossible with God. This is the power of Christ. This is the power of his word. He has just spoken and brought life from the dead. This is the one that spoke creation into existence by his word in Genesis chapter 1. Who is Jesus? This is the question that keeps coming up in the Gospel of Luke. We saw this question in chapter 7. Who is this that thinks he can forgive sins? We saw this earlier in chapter 8 when he stilled the storm. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And nobody knows the right answer to that question so far except the demons. The demons know. We know who you are. The Holy One of God. That's who Jesus really is. And his word is really that powerful. He is the name above all names. He has no rival. He has no equal. There could be no opposition. There could be no resistance. Jeremiah 32 says, Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Jesus, it says in the book of Revelation, holds the keys of death and Hades in his hands. He is the way maker. He's the miracle worker. He's the promise keeper. He's the light in the darkness. My God, that's who he is. That's who he is. When he speaks his word, every molecule, every cell, every part of creation stands at attention. This is what Luke chapter 8 is all about. Christ's word is powerful. It's a seed that gets sown to the ground that bears much fruit. It's, it's his word that has the power to still a storm. It's his word that has the power to cast out a whole legion of demons and send them into the pigs. And now we see his word even has the power to bring life from the dead. This is who Christ is. And this is what his word can do. This is what Luke chapter 8 is teaching us. Do you believe this? Where do you need Jesus to speak a word in your life? The Bible says in the book of Psalms, he sent his word and healed their disease. Could you make that your prayer today? God, would you do that again? 
would you just send your word right into that situation in my life where I need it and correct that situation and heal that situation? Would you intervene with your word? This is what the text is teaching us today. Do you have faith to believe that? Now it says in verse 55, after she was miraculously resurrected, it says that Jesus directed that something should be given her to eat. Now I think everybody's jaws were open. I think everybody was so flabbergasted that he was the only one in the room that had any kind of focus. And like the good Italian that he was, he said, could somebody get this woman something to eat? She must be famished. She's been dead. Somebody go cook something. <laughs> Maybe I think this is funny because I was married into an Italian family, but those of you who are Italians, when you're pushing food, you're just following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. That's what you're doing. <laughs> Maybe Luke 8.55 should be hung over your dining room table. I don't know. We're just obeying Jesus' word. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. I'm kind of having fun here, but in all seriousness, what an incredibly amazing day in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have two miracle stories. They're linked together in several ways. Two people, they both run out of options. They're both desperate. Both of them have the number 12 linking them together. This woman has suffered for exactly the same length of time that the other girl had been alive. Both stories have the idea of Jesus' touch. The woman reaches out to touch Jesus. Jesus touches the little girl and heals her. So many similarities, but also so many differences. Did you notice the differences? For example, one has a main character who's a male. The other has a main character who's a female. One has a main character who has a name, Jairus. The other one is totally anonymous. One has a main character who's a prominent synagogue official. The other one has a main character who's totally separated out from the community altogether. One of these people can approach Jesus Christ with a very direct request. The other one has to sneak up to Jesus from behind. Why does Luke bring them together? The reason he brings them together is because there's a spiritual lesson that applies to both of them that applies to us as well. And it's the lesson of what do we do in times of desperation. First of all, we go to Jesus, just like both of them. And second of all, we come with faith. When we face a crisis, when we're desperate, this is to be our response, to go to Christ and remember that Jesus has told us, do not be afraid, only believe. This is the lesson for you and I. It's the lesson of trust. In the midst of desperation, what will be my response? What will be your response? Will you be like these two characters who come to Christ? Or will you be like the other foils in the story? You know who they are. The bumbling disciples. Who touched you? We don't know who touched you. Or how about the laughing people? Or will you be like these two who had faith and only believed? My encouragement is that we as a church would be like that woman with the issue of blood, that we would be clawing and praying and fasting and pursuing Christ and reaching out just to touch the hem of his garment, just to experience his power, that we would be pursuing him for all that he says he can do and all that he says he is. And in those times of crisis, that we would reach out and we would not be afraid and that we would only believe. Now, I know this is a Baptist church, but today I'm getting a little Bapticostal, if you will. Emphasis on the costal, all right? Christ can do it. He can do it. He's able. And I just want to nudge us a little bit towards faith. What can he do? What can he do in your situation? 
Now, you might have an objection here, and you might say, well, Pastor Dave, okay, if Jesus' word is so powerful, if God is strong and mighty, then why didn't he stop the woman from getting the disease in the first place? And why did he let the little girl die? Why not avoid all of the pain to begin with? How come sometimes he doesn't intervene? Or with that story of little Leah, what if she didn't make it? Because, let's be honest, sometimes it seems like he does allow terrible tragedies. Or in my life. Why is God allowing this tragedy to strike me right now, you might say? Why is he allowing this thorn to press into my side deeper every single day? And that's a really good question. And I want to say with all the sensitivity and pastoral shepherding of my heart that the scriptures teach us that there's multiple outcomes that can happen out of desperate situations, that God can do multiple things. And let me give you at least three options that are available for the children of God. Option A is this, sometimes God can keep his children from the trial, and we don't even know how often God in his grace does this for us. We don't even know how often God puts his hedge of protection around us and says, you may go this far, but no further, and I thank God that perhaps I don't know what could have happened, and sometimes I think God does that. He keeps us from the trial. Or there's option B, which we've seen today, sometimes God keeps us through the trial. God could have kept the woman f- with blood from experiencing that, or God could have kept that little girl and that little girl's family from that whole ordeal, but that was evidently not his purpose. There were lessons for this woman and those around her and this little girl's family that could only be learned by going through these trials, and it's important for us to believe that as well. See, we need to realize that God's not always committed to my comfort, and he's not always committed to my life going perfectly smoothly. God's primarily committed to sanctifying my character and demonstrating his glory, and sometimes he takes me through the trials of life to do so. It's in those trials where he does his best work. We go into a season of what I call temporary deprivation for the purpose of our own purification. That principle is very important because oftentimes people think God has to choose option A. If we have favor with God, then God will protect us and preserve us from all times of great difficulty and trial. I don't see that here in the Gospel of Luke or anywhere else in the Bible. If you honestly think that because you came to faith in Christ, as a result, he's promised you a tragedy-free life, no hurts, no sicknesses, no financial problems, no enemies, if you think Jesus puts a protective bubble around you so that nothing bad can ever happen to you, the problem with that way of thinking, my friend, is that when that stuff does happen to you, and it does come, you won't go running to Christ for comfort and for peace and for strength in that time. You'll go running away from Christ out of anger and despair and disappointment with God, and you'll be angry and bitter towards God himself. And that's a bad place for you to be. Now, some people actually even make you feel guilty because you didn't get your miracle because you didn't have enough faith. That is a toxic spirituality. The Bible teaches that God brings his children into seasons of great trial. There was 12 years of trial for this woman here. And those 12 years, I'm sure they were hard. I'm sure they were difficult. But if we have faith in Christ, we know our trials are never senseless. And it takes faith to believe that too. And we've seen that today. But we must acknowledge that sometimes God chooses A, sometimes God chooses B. And God has a third option that he can choose from for his children sometimes, and it's option C. Sometimes God uses the trial to deliver us to himself. And we know throughout the scriptures and throughout church history 
that for every person Jesus raised up, there were countless others who stood firm in their faith and God took them home. Were those believers less faithful than this little girl? No. It's just that God had a different purpose for their lives. And though their lives were taken, their witness lives beyond them and the kingdom of God continues. So let me be clear. The scriptures don't teach that every single instance of disease and sickness is automatically going to be healed and overcome in this life. But let me also be unequivocally clear that the scriptures do promise us one day every disease will be healed for the child of God. One day in glory when Christ returns, on that day even death itself will be vanquished and swallowed up in victory. One day when the sons and daughters of God are revealed according to Romans chapter 8, we will experience a great resurrection. In other words, what happened to this little girl in our story today? One day that will happen to every single believer in Christ. Think about this. This story is a foretaste. This story is just a little picture of the great resurrection one day. When one day all the little girls who passed away and all of the children who have passed away in Christ will hear the voice of Christ and he will say to them, child, arise. And they will. And they will. Listen to the words of Jesus from John 5. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Amen? This is our great hope. The sure and certain hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is our down payment that one day we will be raised who place our faith in him as well. So whatever God chooses for the child of God, whether it's A, B, or C, what we also know is we always have an opportunity to glorify God, no matter the outcome. And we always have an opportunity to trust him. And think about just this one, I know I'm going long, sorry. Just think about this one point here. God could have chosen option A in this story. And he could have kept that woman and that little girl from going through all of that. But if he did, they would have missed out on something, not just the sickness, but they would have also missed out on their encounter with Christ. And I bet, I don't know this, but I bet if you talk to that woman and you talk to Jairus, and you say, you know that thing you went through? Yeah, I remember that. I was desperate. I was terrified. It was terrible. Wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemy. But would you go through that again? Absolutely. I had a front row seat to experiencing the power of Jesus Christ in my life. I got to see him being glorified in me, in my family, and at work in a powerful way. And so no matter what happens, God's challenge to you and to me is always the same. When you face a desperate situation, it's this. Do not be afraid, only believe. Do not be afraid, only believe. That's the choice they had back then. That is the choice they have that we have today. Let me put that on the screen for you. Do not be afraid, only believe. Can we say that together? Do not be afraid, only believe. One more verse. It's the last verse of the passage, the last verse of chapter 8. After she's raised from the dead, it simply says this, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. I just want you to notice one word in that verse. It's that word amazed. The word amazed there means an utter astonishment, to be in awe, to be in wonder. They'd never seen anything like this. This was the most wonderful day in their entire lives. 
The word amazed is used very frequently to describe the Lord Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Luke. And the reason is because the Lord Jesus Christ is simply amazing. The Gospel of Luke is simply amazing. The story of Jesus' life goes from one amazing thing to the next. To be totally honest with you, I've been amazed at the life of Jesus Christ for over 20 years when I first started studying him. And I'm amazed all over again going through the Gospel of Luke with you this morning. Isn't he amazing? Isn't every word amazing? Isn't every miracle amazing? Isn't every new story amazing? Isn't every new insight he gives us amazing? Isn't every new section amazing? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous. How wonderful. And my song shall ever be how marvelous. How wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Speaking of amazing, let's take a look at how that story of Leah turned out. When Jesus healed the daughter of the synagogue ruler, he said to her, a Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, get up. The first time I started to show first signs of, you know, movement was three days after I had been in the hospital. I was laying in my bed, and I guess the physical therapist had come in. I remember I did wiggle my right toe. Her right toe is as far as you can get from your, your brain telling you to move a right toe. So that was a great sign of hope. Finally felt like the wheels were in motion. I would check the whiteboard schedule every day there at the hospital, and it would say, you know, OT at 8 a.m., and I'd say, gosh darn it, we're going to be there, and we're going to be there early, because we knew we had a lot of work to do. We knew it was going to be a long road. And then we had our first couple pool sessions. Um, she would say to me, Mom, I had fun. That's all you want, right, for your daughter to have fun. And she hasn't had anything close to fun for a very long time. But just being in the pool, with a couple of therapists who were more than kind. That was what she needed. You know, it was just a little bit of fun. One of the uh, real milestones came when she was at Children's Hospital in New Brunswick. Leah was sitting on my bed, and she looked over at her bed, which is three, four feet apart, and she said, um, I want to walk over to your bed and sit on your bed. And she walked across the room from her, her mom's bed to her bed. And once those steps happened, it was amazing. We were off to the races. There's definitely been some times through it all, God has proven that he's there and that he will always be present and will always have my back and continue to help me grow. My story is very unique and I feel it could be used to encourage a lot of people and to bring more people into a relationship with God. We thank God for his work of healing in Leah's life. While you were watching the video, I was just watching her laugh and have fun with her friend in the back there. God is good. Let's stand and let's pray together as we prepare to worship and enjoy the Lord's Supper together. God, we thank you for your special story of victory that we cherish. It is a lesson for us. In our own times of desperation, we go to you. 
We do not be afraid. We only believe. Help us to reach out and touch the hem of your garment. Help us to be a church full of men and women, young men and young women, reaching out for you together this year. My friend, if you're here today with every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm sure there's a situation in your life that needs prayer. Would you just take a moment and lift up that situation that needs prayer in your own life? I'm just gonna pause for a moment and let you have a private time of prayer with God. Just pray. God, we know you're able. And so I pray for my friends today that they'd experience your victory and your power. Find them placing their faith in you, drawing near to you. Remind them of your grace. Remind them of your presence. Assure them that your miracle-working power is still available today. Strengthen them as they wait on you. Give them encouragement and hope. For we ask this in Christ's name. And everyone said,